Bibles to um, the Word of God. We're going to uh, have a slight adjustment in the passages, but turn first, if you would, to the passage we were uh, quoting earlier today, to John um, 3, if you would. The Gospel of John. There's a, several books called John in the Bible, but um, we invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. While you're turning there, I just remind you that this whole conversation uh, came about as a result of uh, uh, an interaction between um, between a religious kind of person and Jesus. You see, um, when when a religious person named Nicodemus encountered Jesus, it kind of created a tension in in his heart because everything that he thought he understood was being turned upside down, and so. Uh, not not being confident enough to come see Jesus in the daytime, he came at night and approached him in that amazing born-again passage at the beginning of John chapter 3. And Nicodemus came to Jesus and says, I know, I know you are the Christ. I know that you are the Messiah, but I can't wrap my brain around this. It's so different than everything I understood. Jesus gave him just an amazing expression of of uh, truth about the Holy Spirit and how uh, the Holy Spirit um, works through our minds, certainly, but does something powerful. The Holy Spirit awakens our spirit for the very first time to the truths of God. Does that make sense? So you could have people that are trying to approach uh, God simply through their mind, and yet because our minds are so conditioned by the culture around us, they're not able to grasp these spiritual things. And then the Holy Spirit, which we can't see, he says to Nicodemus, it's like the wind. This Holy Spirit awakens in us uh, the ability to understand. And for the first time, we live into this new insight. We discover the truth that was there all the time in the very word we were proclaiming. But all of a sudden, that truth becomes transformative instead. And so, um, and so he ends that conversation. Uh, I'm going to take you back just a couple of verses in verse 14 uh, by by um, saying, "No one." Verse 13: No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. And he he interprets then the parable that's been going on. He says, "The Son of Man." He identifies himself as this prophetic figure from Daniel and Ezekiel. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so that all those who had been bitten by the serpent could be healed, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Do you see this? Uh, That whoever believes in him might have eternal life. And then he says our memory verse. Say it with me one more time, would you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Let me continue by myself here. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment The light has come into the world. That's how John began his gospel. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The very word of God. Mm, thank you, God. Thank you. Now turn back a few pages with me, would you, uh, to the Gospel of Matthew. Again, today's um, passages are very familiar to us. If we've been walking with the, with the Lord for any length of time, we have heard them so many times. We often have done Bible studies with them. But, but the Gospel of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, has powerful words about this light. Follow along with me, would you, as, um, as I read from Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. You, he says, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The very word of God. Mm. Well, wow. Have you been following the, uh, the comments? I, I have to tell you, I just do not have a heart for it in the, in the midst of this political season that we find ourselves, I, uh, wow, I'm going to preach to you to engage the culture, and my knee-jerk reaction is to withdraw from the culture. Uh, my reaction is to say, I just want to burrow somewhere until after the first week of November. Uh, and I recognize that in myself. I recognize that it is a, an easy temptation. And, and honestly, it's not a new temptation. In Jesus' day, there were people that did the same thing. There were whole classes of people who just said the solution when, when the world seems to be falling apart around you is to just withdraw from the world. Last Wednesday at our men's study, we opened some of those uh, ideas together. We, we saw that there was a whole culture called the Essene culture, that their solution to this problem was just to bail out and to create some holy hodl in the desert where, where they, could, uh, they could live in a world that they could control. And, uh, and um, it's interesting. Jesus had the alternative. He had the opportunity to, to proclaim that culture, and, and he didn't. There was another culture called the Sadducee culture where, where uh, their, their solution was just to, uh, um, to collaborate with the culture around you. And, and I'm sure in their hearts and minds they thought we're going to be able, by collaborating with the culture, we're going to be able to change the culture. But the reality, at least in Jesus' day, was that they became indistinguishable from the culture. And by the way, that is the indictment. The way to do this is to overcome it by violence, by violence. And uh, they were known as the zealots. And they took that word zeal. Zeal for my father's house has consumed me. And they said, that's the solution. Uh, revolution is the solution. Uh, and, and yet, uh, Jesus did not, um, did not advocate that culture either. There's all these expressions of how to live in the midst of this. And Jesus didn't seem to live into any of them. 
I do have to, I have to have to smile when I think about our current culture. Have you heard all the people that said, if, um, if Hillary Clinton becomes president, I'm leaving the country? Have you heard that? <clears throat> have you heard all the people that said, if Trump becomes president, I'm leaving the country, right? So there's going to be half, there's going to be lots more space after November, okay? Because <laughs> half of the world is going to leave, uh, is going to leave the country. And, and I have to tell you, I have to tell you that New Zealand is starting to look pretty good to me, you know? Um, I see those pictures and I go, ah, but um, wow, uh, Christ in me will not allow me to go there. I'm, gonna, I'm smiling at myself if you're wondering why I wandered around during, during scripture reading, because I dropped my notes somewhere. And so I'm doing this for memory. It could be really exciting. could be really exciting. <clears throat> I'm doing them off of your notes here. Christians, I want to suggest to you as a starting point that Christians cannot be Christian, nor can the church be the church without some tension with the world and its, and its culture, right? Um, without some tension with the world and its culture. Remember way back when, when we were studying this passage together, we were studying the Sermon on the Mount together, and, and we said uh, that when Christianity and culture are placed in juxtaposition, two things can happen, right? The world will want to persecute you. If you're genuinely living out the, the Christ life, the world will want to persecute you. I'm looking up there, hoping to get the right word. And, um, but then there's this other thing. Do you remember this? As we studied the Sermon on the Mount together, we discovered in the midst of of the hatred, in the midst of the persecution, there will be this dynamic where they will be strangely attracted to you at the same time. They'll be strangely attracted to you. Uh, So, so, um, Jesus, I want you to know this. They're going to treat you the same way that they treated me. How did they treat him? They were persecuted him, and yet they were strangely attracted. Look at Nicodemus in the middle of the night. They were strangely attracted. Why did they do this? Because that's how they responded to Christ. So, so let's try and wrap our brains around this. How do we live in this tension together? We have to note several different things. Okay, we have to note, first of all, and we'll define culture in a minute, but let me just say at the beginning, culture is not monolithic, right? There is not one culture that we have to keep track of, right? Let me just, is, is there one democratic culture? Those of you who are Democrats, is there one democratic culture? Ooh, wow, I remember the primaries, right? There was not. Is there one Republican culture? No, there's not. Is there one Christian culture? Um, probably you can think of some form of Christianity that you go, ooh, that's not, that's not me. So let's just understand right off the bat that there's not one culture. In fact, the Bible never uses the word culture. It'll use things like tribes and tongues and things like that. It'll describe culture using other words, trying to help us understand it's not us against them. Uh, each culture has some good elements in it, and each culture has some elements that are not good, right? That's going to be really important, because when you see Christ engaging the culture, he was able to walk beside some aspects of the different cultures that he encountered. Remember the Samaritan woman? You're just thinking, what are you doing? And yet Christ was able to, to separate out the things of that culture that were not good from the things that were good. Well, let me, let me um, just stop for a second and say, what is this word culture? What is it? 
Um, and it's brought us since um, culture is the summation of all that we value or to which we ascribe worth. Does that, I mean, you've heard the word worship, right? The English word worship comes from that which we ascribe to which we ascribe worth. Each culture, excuse me, the culture is the summation of that which we value or to which we ascribe worth, right? It's the focus or the foci in plural of our worship. So, so culture in general or any given culture is going to be the natural expression of whatever the people in that culture have come to worship. Have come to worship. But secondly, and, and, and I want you to hear that. Have you ever heard the word cult? What do you, what do you hear when you hear the word cult? What, what do you immediately want to do? I want to go. Right? But, but, but cult, here's, here's what many of you have suspected. We are a cult. Right? Cult simply means worship. The the point is not, do you worship? The point is, who do you worship, right? And so many of you said, I knew it, I knew it. Pastor Dave's got a cult going over there. Yeah, yeah, in a sense we do. But the Lord willing, it's Jesus that we worship. And you can always check anything I say or anything that I do against Jesus and help me understand when I step outside the boundaries of us. So, so it's, the, it's the summation of that which we value and that which we ascribe worth. It, it's the focus of our worship. But, but the same word cult, do you know that word in another format is simply the word cultivated, right? It, it's cultivated behavior. I'm hoping I'm getting these right. So far, so good. It's cultivated Behavior, a way of life for a group of people. Now, what do I mean by that? It's a summation of their behaviors, their beliefs, their values, the symbols that they accept generally without thinking about them. Right. When I was slathering uh, grape jelly on bologna when I was a child, I wasn't worried that I might be offending. I can see it from some of you that I am uh, offending some people because that was okay in the culture that I grew up in. You did that. Right. You did that. Um, It was not thought about. Oftentimes we don't think about them, but we pass them on through our habits, through our communication. We pass them on through imitation from one generation to the next as well. So it's the summation of all that a people group do. That's why no matter where you go in the world, you're going to encounter some different cultures. And our, our, our missionaries get this. They get this. They go, I'm going to go and learn first what are the norms of this body that I want to share Jesus Christ with. I'm going to watch for norms that can be uh, met and, and uh, acknowledged and, and kept. Um, norms that are morally, if you would, neutral, not necessarily uh, uh, contrary to Christianity. I'm going to watch for those and, and celebrate those, but then I'm going to introduce concepts that maybe they ne- have never heard of before, like a God who loves them, a God who, who, who left heaven to come to earth to give himself for them. One of the most famous examples of that that I remember from my youth was uh, a man who went on the mission field to, uh, to a tribe of people that had never heard the gospel and, and could not get them, could not get them to, uh, to even respond to him as well. And then, 
in a, in a tragedy. I'm thinking of Peace Child, David, if you remember that from David and I were parallel cultures as youth. Um, uh, then he lost a child. He lost a child and, uh, and, and stayed in the midst of their grief. They stayed on that mission field. And all of a sudden, the culture began to come to them because all of a sudden they said, you know, now, oh, see, you're, you're like us. We have lost children too. And then he was able to take that imagery of a child's death and, and translate that into the story of Jesus. And for the first time, um, they were able to translate the gospel into that culture. It's happening all around us on a regular basis. Surrounding us right now are all kinds of Muslims who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ because people are loving them and caring for them and finding points of contact. By the way, the gospel is a major point of contact with Islam. They believe that uh, the Injil or the New Testament is, is God-inspired and they take that and, and, and speak truth through that. So, so um, wow, we have this amazing opportunity uh, to engage our culture. Well, how do we do that? How can you approach the... In, in this room, there are probably 30 different cultures represented. How can you approach the culture into which God has placed you with the life-saving truth of Jesus Christ? How do we approach the culture in which we live? I want to suggest you want to look first in the way that some people have understood this question. The way people have understood it. The famous, the famous um, uh, overarching study of this question was uh, by H. Richard Niebuhr in a famous book called Christ and Culture, in which he identified five possible answers to the question of how we should approach culture. And you can see that I kind of staggered them. I'm kind of leading you by even the order in which I place these and, and the way that I place them. But the first one would be Christ against culture. Christ against culture. The parallel in his culture of that day would be the Pharisees. There's no common ground between these two things. And there's some people who believe that anything of the world is wrong and anything of, of Christ is right, and ne'er the twain shall meet. Christ is against culture. You've met people. Maybe you come from that place. I would just remind you, that, well, you'll see it in just a second as we, as we unpack gospel truth for this. Christ against culture. Still others uh, of us um, uh, resonate with Niebuhr's concept of Christ above culture. Yes, yes, he, uh, he sees the evil that's going on around us, but Christ transcends that. He's above it. And one day we're going to join him where he is, and, and all this won't matter anymore. And, and it's so tempting to go there, right? That's kind of the Essenes. Let's just withdraw from this and, and try and... Um, and try and find a way to navigate these days until he comes for us and everything's made right. Christ above or transcending culture. Uh, uh, still another way of understanding this is Christ transforming culture. Number three, how am I doing? Christ, Christ transforming culture. Okay, and we and we recognize that no, he didn't come against the culture. He didn't come and 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 wait for culture to one day come to him. He became flesh and dwelt among us and changed the culture in which he lived. 
And, and I just want to, I just want to invite you to think deeply about that. He did not withdraw from it. He did not oppose it. Instead, he became flesh in the midst of it and brought about change. Brought about change in the midst of it. There's still another understanding that um, Niebuhr brought that's really important. This one is a little bit brain stretching, but that is that, um, that Christ and culture are in paradox. In other words, there's a lot of things that we cannot reconcile about what we hear Christ say and the reality that we see. Let me give you a for instance. If you're not used to this, it's going to sound odd to you. I have been saved. Praise God. I am being saved. I will be saved. Now, some of you are going, yeah, what's the big deal? Others of you are going, wait, wait a minute. You can't. Have you been or will you be? Do you see the paradox in this? And yet, at the same time, they're all true. They're all true. That, that Christ and culture are in paradox. There's true things about our culture. There's true things about Christ that right now we cannot see how they are reconciled. Just like they could not see how Jesus could speak to a woman, to a, to a Samaritan, to a prostitute, to break all these rules uh, how could he live in that kind of paradox? Um, Niebuhr understands that that's one way of understanding Jesus. Christ against culture, Christ above culture, Christ transforming culture, Christ and culture in paradox. And lastly, I'm going to need help on this one. Christ and culture. Yeah, there we go. The Sadducees. Indistinguishable. You can see the first and the last are kind of opposites. In the midst of this. Um, but, but one way is just to say, uh, engage the culture. In other words, whatever the culture is doing, that's God's will, and we will join it there. Um, that's, that's probably the greatest dis- uh, description of North American churchianity right now. Uh, and I use those words very carefully. Um, not North American Christianity, but North American churchianity, that, that they become indistinguishable. Well, that's how people have understood this question. How do we approach the culture in which we live? But how, how does Scripture frame the question? How does Scripture frame the question? Go ahead to the next one as well, if you would. Um, well, we've heard it this morning, and it's hard. There's paradoxical aspects of it. But how does God feel about the culture? God loves the world. Amen? We've said it several times today. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, in other words, the only actual physical son that he had. We are all children of God by adoption, uh, by creation and then by adoption. But, but Jesus was the only one actually born of the Holy Spirit and woman. God loves this world in spite of its evil and entered into it. That's how much he loved this world. So, so scripture says you got to understand as much as you want to withdraw or disengage or condemn or any of the prior responses that we said, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus loves the world and entered into it. Well, does that mess with our Reformed theology? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, not, Jesus loves the world. Not all the world will respond to that love. He's set apart some to respond. Some will not respond. We know that, but we don't make our definitions fit what we see. Instead, we look to Jesus 
and see how he responded. And he loved it and came into it. Do you remember when he was talking to the rich young ruler? And, and, and he uh, discerned that the major thing that this guy had going was his wealth. And so he said, uh, the scripture says, and he loved him and said, go sell all you have and give it to the poor. His stumbling block was his wealth. And you remember that the rich young ruler hung his head and walked away and Jesus didn't go chasing after him. He loved him, spoke truth to him, and watched as that man walked away. So, so um, God loves the world in spite of its evil and enters into it. But, but where, where does this leave us? We have to recognize that sin and evil in our culture demand, just like Jesus, demand a discerning response from us as well. Demand a discerning response from us. Now, what can be those responses? I'm going to to use different words now. I'm going to use different words than we used earlier. But the first one can be to, I'm guessing, reject. To reject the culture around us. It's so tempting, right? It's so tempting to reject the culture around us and say, I'm just going to hold on uh, until sweet Jesus comes to get me. And I'm not condemning you if you're in that place, but I'm just inviting you to a different way of understanding. Because remember, if that had been Jesus' plan, when you came to the saving knowledge of Jesus, he would have then just graciously drawn you to himself, right? If that was Jesus' plan, then he would have brought you home the moment he got what he wanted, the moment that you put your faith in him. But no, as we've seen, he chooses instead to use you and to place you in that culture. Rejection is not an option. Secondly, he invites us to accept. One, a different response that we can have is to accept the culture around us as well. Accept the fact that there is sin and brokenness, but that that is the world in which we live. The third response is to adapt to it. To adapt to it, neither positively or negatively. Adapt how we present the gospel in the midst of that culture, or more commonly, to adapt ourselves to that culture. The danger of that is that is. Well, do you remember the amazing illustration of the frog in the kettle? I know you understand this. I was going to do that for a children's uh, sermon today, but I thought, you know, boiled frog probably wouldn't uh, work very well. Um, but the implication is if you drop a frog in a boiling pot of water, it will immediately jump out because it knows that this is, a, this is a deadly environment. But if instead you put that frog in a cool pot of water and ever so gradually turn the heat up, the frog thinks jacuzzi, right? And, 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 and stays in the pot and all of a sudden, bad example, sorry, and, 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 and stays in the pot until all of a sudden it's cooked. It's cooked. And that's the danger for us is that, 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 um, that we don't recognize that the heat has been turned, on, turned up. Let me just ask for a second. Beloved, has the heat been turned up in your lifespan? Is, that, is there anybody out there? Has it, has the, yeah. Has it been really turned up even in the last decade? Even in the last five years? Did, did our grandparents and stuff feel the same way? They probably did, huh? Um, I don't think this is new, but I'm pretty old. I've never seen this much this fast. 
Um, this is important stuff. This is important stuff. Lastly, uh, the last possible response can be to, to say, um, I'm going to partner with God in bringing about the transformation of this. I say this with um, a little bit of trepidation because we don't change anything. Amen? We have no power to do that. We don't save anybody, um, but we can partner with God. Some planting, some uh, cultivating, some harvesting. We, pl- we partner with God in bringing about the transformation of a culture. God invites us into that thing together. I'm going to suggest to you point three, that Christians are called to engage and transform the culture around them. We're called to do that. Now, I I want to tell you that I know that there's some paradoxical aspects that we will not understand. But when he gives us insight into what our role might be, we're called to engage it. As much as we want to run away, as much as we want to avoid the political, the social, the racial, all the tensions around us, as much as we want to avoid them, um, we're called instead to, to join with them. I don't have my notes with me, and earlier I wanted to make a note to you and say, um, let's start, as a sidebar for a second, let's start by refusing to engage in binary thinking. In, uh, it's going to sound odd, black or white, right? There's only two alternatives. We do that, don't we? And, and our, whole, our culture forces us into that. Are you a Republican or a Democrat? Are you... Uh, uh, Black? Are you white? Are you are you male or female? Uh, there's a certain amount of that is is, is true. There, uh, light and dark and, and things like that are binary thinking. But but if you reject something just because it's not what you are, then you miss God's opportunity. So we, when in this political season, especially, we've got to refuse to step into that and make judgments about them based on the button that they're wearing or the wristband that they're wearing. We've got to see their souls. We've got to look beyond the culture from which they're arising and see them as a child of God who has every possibility of grasping and understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we are called to engage and transform the culture around us. How are we doing that? You were way ahead of me. Um, well, he gives us those two examples, right? Again, these are so familiar, they're dangerous. But, but, but the first one was of salt, right? Now, there's been massive studies done. What was he meaning on this? We, uh, we don't know for sure. All we do know is that salt is very important. Forgiveness for those of you who are on low-salt diets right now. Um, but salt is critically important, right? Um, you can understand uh, salt as being that which flavors the world. And if you're on a low-salt diet, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Um, one of our precious members is on a, a, a Meals on Wheels program that comes to your house because they do that for all kinds of people. They have to have no spices in that thing. And I don't know about you, but, but I like spice in life, and I like it on my food. And, uh, and, and the thought of bland stuff coming to me is not appealing. It's not appealing to her either. It is not appealing. One idea is, is this idea that, that, um, that it is the thing that brings flavor to something. It brings out the best of whatever's in there. 
Uh, Jesus understood that because he said if salt has lost its flavor, what good is it? And he actually, it's interesting, isn't it? He says it's only good to be what? For snow removal, right? Right? And we use salt for that. It helps melt snow, but, it, but if it's lost its flavor, it's only good to be thrown out and trampled upon. Now, we know that salt has amazing other characteristics. You go without salt for a very long period of time, and, and you will... Um, You'll get confused, and, and your body's functions will get all out of whack. It has many other things. Let me just mention one of them. Um, salt is an amazing preservative, isn't it? And, and if we can see this, if you'll forgive me, if we can see this as preserving the best of a culture while presenting another alternative in the gospel, that's a powerful, that's a powerful um, uh, hope that God gives us, that Jesus gives us when he says, you are the salt of the earth. The second one is even more powerful, and that is the idea of light and darkness. And I was thinking about this. Um, at one point, uh, Karen got up last night and, and, and went in the bathroom, the master bathroom right off there, flicked on the light, and, and, and the darkness in the room was dispelled, and I wasn't happy about it. Um, uh, I didn't chew her out or anything like that, but I, I just recognized, ooh, wow, now I'm awake. Okay, you know. Um, when you shine light into, yeah, let's, let's switch it for a second. When you shine darkness into light, what happens? Nothing. When you shine light into darkness, what happens? Everything. Everything. Now, I say that, and Jesus pointed out uh, in the John passage that, that that's not always good, Right? A lot of us don't want too much light shown into our lives, right? Because it's going to point out some of the false understandings that we have. It's going to show, uh, point out some of the nasty things that are still going on. Uh, but the promise of Scripture is that if we will just allow God to do that, to shine light on something, then it will bring about transformation of that thing. And one of the things we do in our men's groups is try to shine light even into the darkest recesses of our souls. Try and let the light of Christ shine into that in the love and protection of the brotherhood of other men to be able to say, uh, trusting that you love me and, and you'll, you'll walk with me through this, you won't judge me, I want to shine the light of the gospel into this area of my life. It brings about transformation. So God has given us both a call to engage and transform the culture, and he has also given us a way to do that. I want to suggest to you as, as just a closing thought that, that it can be very easy to make decisions about how we respond to the culture around us simply based on, on habits and personal taste. Habits and personal... Remember that, that part of the job of culture is to habituate you to certain things. And so, uh, I, periodically, I'll run into brothers and sisters in Christ who have been habituated into a particular understanding of some aspect of the gospel and just bringing the possibility that there might be a different way of understanding it absolutely rattles their cage. Absolutely rattles their cage. And, and, um, and you've probably experienced the same kind of thing. I don't want to just respond out of habits, right? Why? Because some of the things that have come down to me uh, are, not, are not gospel, right? Some of the things that I have accepted and integrated into my faith culture are not gospel. And, and I have to be open to the possibility that this is my personal taste and this is my 
um, habits rather than rather than God's plan. The illustration that I just think about when I do that is cruise control, right? I love cruise control. I never thought of most of my life my cars did not have power windows and did not have cruise control, and I didn't know any different. Um, but then uh, the last two cars that we've had have had both, and I am a happy boy. Especially we're going to leave it in about five minutes, I think. We're going to leave for Muskegon, Michigan for five days of, of um, retreat, Karen and I. And, and, and I'm so grateful for, for uh, cruise control because I'll put that button, we'll get on the highway, and, and we will motor along there. But here's the danger. So many of us have put our spiritual lives on cruise control. Right. And, and what we set the cruise control to is not within the boundaries of what God would desire for us. And, and, and because we're so used to it, we don't realize that I want to invite you to risk with me over the next few weeks to risk looking, shining light into some of the cultural aspects that we have just accepted and, and integrated into our life and saying, God, if there's anything in me, anything in me that's not honoring you. I give you permission. I give my brothers, if, if you're a man, I give my sisters, if you're a woman, I give, I give them permission to speak into my life. I, I just want to, to, to click the cruise control off and, and, and again, in imagery that men can understand, put your hand back on the wheel. Put your foot back on the pedal and, and, and drive in a way that honors God. Drive in a way that honors God. How do we do that? Well, um, we're not abandoned in this, and I won't go in deep because I know you know this, but, but three gifts of God for this, the Word of God, right? He's not just said, figure this out for yourself. He's given you not only, not only doctrinal truth, uh, um, propositional truth, but then these amazing stories in scriptures to help you navigate what does it look like when a religious person encounters Jesus Christ? What does it look like? And he gives us John chapter 3. You know, what does it look like? Uh, he gives us story to help us understand the Word of God has got to be, got to be a part of the equation. And I want to say to you, I just encountered it on the Internet um, yesterday as well, that, that it's pretty popular in Christian culture to, to talk so much about the application of the Word of God uh, that, uh, to diminish the actual Word of God. What am I, I didn't say that well. Let me put it differently. It's popular to say, I don't care what you've memorized or all that stuff. If, it does, if you don't put it into action, it doesn't matter. Is that true? Oh, you're sniffing a, a sneaky question. It's not. That's absolutely true, right? But before you can apply Scripture, you have to put it in there, right? That's going to come out big time in just a moment as well. The Word of God is critically important to us, but also the Spirit of God. I might have gotten them out of order. The Spirit of God is, is a critical part of that, right? What is the job of the Spirit of God? To give you new truth? No. No, that when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will remind you of what I have taught you. The job of the Spirit is to bring to mind and bring to application the Word of God. I'm not saying that God doesn't sovereignly intervene. I've had those moments where God sovereignly intervenes. I'm grateful for that. But the job of the Spirit is to remind you of what's already been tucked away in there. So, yes, apply that scripture. It's meaningless if you don't, but you've got to put that scripture in there as well. That's why we give you memory verses. Hide them in your heart. 
But if, if you're still not quite being able to navigate after, after immersing yourself in the Word of God, after crying out to the Spirit of God, if you're still struggling to navigate this, this amazing tension between, between the gospel and the culture around you, I just invite you to look at the example of Jesus. Look at the example of Jesus. He is dedicated. Jesus Christ is dedicated to helping you understand and apply this. Go ahead, if you would. He's dedicated to the Word of God and being led by the Spirit of God to engage the culture around you. Um, God is going to send you out these doors in just a moment, and you're going to be smack dab back in the midst of diverse cultures. Don't despair. Don't despair. Jesus has gone before you. Come on up, worship team, if you would. Jesus has gone before you. You're not going, David, when you go into um, uh, a prison, uh, it's not like you're going to a place where Jesus has never been. When, when, when you go into your workplace, it's not like you're going into a place where Jesus has never been. He's already gone before you. He's there already waiting for you to join him there, to partner with him in the transformation of that culture into which he has called you. He's waiting with open arms. That's why it's so critical that you do not let condemnation block you from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation in Christ, right? There will be judgment one day. This is not the day. Right now, there's invitation to come running to his arms, to embrace the Christ who transcends and engages and does all of these things with culture. Meet him there. Pray with me, would you? God, thank you that you've not abandoned us. You gave us this amazing example of Jesus. And you gave us, God, this amazing gift of your word. There's nothing, God, that we face that your word does not address. Most of all, God, you have given us your spirit to call us, to convict us, to, to comfort us, and to invite us into this transformation process. Would you begin with us now, God? Where we have found our identity in hiding or running away or or, um, collaborating with culture, will you invite us instead to be salt and light in a world that so desperately needs it? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.